from the Partnership for Public Service. This is Profiles in Public Service, a podcast that tells the stories of the public servants responsible for our government's most significant achievements. I'm Lauren DeYoung Shulman. And I'm Rachel Klein Kircher. I'm so excited to be back on the podcast front with my wonderful co-host, Rachel, and to be able to use this as an opportunity to welcome our colleague, Valerie Boyd, the Executive Director of the Center for Presidential Transition. Welcome, Valerie. Thanks, Lauren. It's wonderful to be here. A couple of weeks ago, on January 20th, the one-year anniversary of the Biden administration, we at the Partnership for Public Service had an event to launch our report around lessons learned for presidential transition. And one of the things I love about the whole conceit of this is that transition or planning for presidential transition is something that happens every four years. And yet so much in this space has changed in the last two decades. And really the last transition was what, you know, I think hopefully a once in a lifetime event for so many reasons, whether it be the pandemic or some of the political turmoil that occurred. But the fact that we have a Center for Presidential Transition that acts as a learning system for this is such an incredible feature of the partnership and one of the things that I've enjoyed the most about it. So Valerie, you just started here a few months ago um, as we were in the middle of developing this report and thinking about this event. Why is it that you think that this is so important? We do this every four years, but it's new every time. Why is it so important for us to study the act of presidential transition and to find reforms in it? Well, there are a few reasons it's, uh, it's important. First, the transfer of power in our country is a, one of the most consequential um, transfers of power in the world. I'm sure you've discussed before the federal government has 4 million employees, trillions of dollars of spending, and the entire leadership of the government, um, 1,200 appointees or 4,000 appointees, 1,200 Senate confirmed, turn over with a new presidency. And it's a really consequential change of um, of knowledge and responsibility. And it's important for candidates, incumbents to work together to share information so that it all goes smoothly. Another reason is that prior to the creation of the center by Max Steyer and the partnership, this was happening pretty informally and being recreated every time. So um, we've developed a set of resources for candidates and their teams to use to help them know best practices that previous teams have developed. Valerie, one of the things that struck me during the conversation with our panelists and experts is that with all of these guidelines in place and materials and best practices and knowing what it is that needs to be done, not just to serve the parties themselves, but in interest of the country, it really struck me listening to them that there's no safeguard against an individual who may hinder the process. And the question I believe was asked, you know, what can we do about that? And I, it seemed to me there wasn't a very clear path forward. What is your take on that? In the report itself, we make a series of recommendations to further strengthen the Presidential Transition Act. One of them is recognizing that there is in modern history, a, a series of examples of delayed election results, including the 2000 election with Bush versus Gore and um, heading into 2020. So we recommend that 
Congress examine how to encourage federal agencies to share more key information with more than one candidate after the election if the results are delayed. Um, Another area that we recommend is reviewing OMB's role as a service provider. OMB is central to not just the budget, but also overall management, planning, regulations, and rulemaking for the government. And one of the lessons of 2020 is that analytical support from the incumbent OMB uh, to an incoming team really helps that incoming team hit the ground running. Valerie, one of the things I appreciated about the event, uh, and this is really thematic of the work that you do and the work in the report, is that we had former Governor Chris Christie, who had led the Trump transition in 2016, Senator Ted Kaufman, who was one of the major contributors to the Presidential Transition Act, as it is written now, as well as chair of the Biden transition in 2020. And Joseph McConnell, who is an academic in this space, who studies presidential appointments and leadership. And then, of course, Judy Woodruff, amazing journalist, huge, I'm a huge fan, who is serving as our moderator. And we have previously on this podcast uh, interviewed Mary Jaber and Gail Loveless, who are themselves civil servants in this space. And from all of that, you can see that transition is a symphony. It's bringing together so many different players who are critical to the conversations around transition, to roles in transition. One of the things I wanted to ask you is, is there are there audiences that you think should be more conscious of their role in transition or more purposeful about it? Even to include the American people, what you would like them to think about in terms of their role in transition or their expectations of it. Absolutely. I I do think 2020 revealed that transitions rest much more on goodwill than was previously understood. And the American public should take away the enthusiasm in supporting this institution. I agree with, you know, the sentiment that it was so encouraging to hear with all the hiccups and, you know, perhaps, you know, internal battles that we may or may not see how much goodwill across the aisle and and how complimentary, you know, both sides were to previous transitions and the generosity and the understanding of incumbents and the new team that you can't just show up one day and I am now in power and things continue on as if it was private industry, because that is just not the case. And so, you know, they're all in it together. So I did appreciate the cooperative aspect that we continue to hear. And I will say another aspect that's always so fascinating to me, and this is a recurring theme, I think, with a lot of the guests that Lauren and I have spoken with, is that even with something as big as presidential transition, all of these agencies, you know, your GSA, FBI, and others, they still also have their day jobs alongside this big transition effort. So whether there's a national crisis happening, global pandemic, they also still need to do the things that they're doing. So Valerie, I don't know if there's also discussion. I I know in the report, there's recommendations about giving more resources and, and funding, but is there thought given to actually allowing teams to just focus on this one thing that they do so well? It's a great question, Rachel. And I think back to the transition that I participated in um, and had a very minor role was the 2008 transition from Bush to Obama, where I 
worked at the Homeland Security Council at the time and played a role in helping deliver all of the issue papers that our subject matter experts had prepared on different Homeland Security topics to up through the White House review chain to get them ready for President Obama's team to receive after the election. And at the time, it was kind of an, an additional kind of 50% or or more workload on top of the regular policymaking that the team was trying to wrap up priorities for President Bush, the emergencies that inevitably uh, come up in interagency discussions, and then trying to prepare all of this additional information. And it, it really felt like an additional work stream. So I sympathize completely with the agency transition directors and, and staff who are feeling that across the the government. So to your point, Rachel, we do recommend in the report that Congress look at additional appropriations for some of the agencies that feel the impact the most in transition years. So DOJ and FBI have to do a larger number of background investigations, depending on whether there's an incumbent running again or what the situation is that year. Um, the Office of Government Ethics needs to conduct more disclosure review. So the agencies that have the most impact during every four-year transition really deserve additional appropriations to help them staff up for that search capacity. Valerie, from your answer here and from the content of the report, you can hear the tremendous care that you and our team at the Center for Presidential Transition have about the individuals involved, the norms and principles that go into a peaceful tra uh, transfer of power, and the overall demands of this system and wanting to make sure it functions so well. So congratulations on this incredible report. I hope all of our listeners uh, get a chance to look at it as they enjoy this uh, hearing this event that you're about to listen to with all of the folks that we just mentioned earlier in the panel. And Rachel, I'm so happy to have you back in the podcast. Seat. We get to start our season again here soon. It's great to be back with all of you. Yes, belated Happy New Year to everyone. And Valerie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. To me, there are few things uh, more symbolic and more essential to our democracy than the peaceful transition of power. And that's why talking about this transition uh, is so important. It may not be in the headlines right this minute, uh, but it matters. It certainly has mattered to our country over the last year. It continues to have repercussions. And uh, I'm just so very glad to be part of this conversation. And I'm especially pleased to introduce three people who are uniquely uh, qualified uh, to talk about uh, the subject. I want to welcome first the former United States Senator. You heard Max mention him a minute ago from the state of Delaware, Ted Kaufman. Um, he was co-chair of the Biden-Harris a transition team last year. He has been a close friend and advisor to uh, President Biden for, I guess, half a century, 50 years um, since Mr. Biden's first uh, run for the Senate. So uh, Senator Kaufman, welcome. Next, the former two-term governor of the state of New Jersey, uh, Chris Christie. He did serve for a time as chair of the Trump transition team in 2016. He served in that role for six months from May 
2016 until shortly after the election uh, that year. And our third panelist is Anne Joseph O'Connell. Uh, she is both the Adelbert H. Sweet Professor of Law at Stanford University Law School. She's also a social scientist. Uh, her award-winning research and teaching focuses on administrative law and the federal bureaucracy. So welcome to all three of you. We're very glad to have you. Um, and I just want to start by asking each one of you, I'm going to go to Senator Kaufman first, what is your basic reaction when you when you read this report? What did you think, Senator? I, I, I think it's great. I, I, of course, I'm, I'm prejudiced. I've been working with the partnership since they started this in 2008. So I'm, it's not, you know, they, they, I really think they did a great job. I especially think they kind of pointed out something that should have been, should should be pointed out how we got in this mess with the confirmations. I mean, every year, every four years, practically, the number of people, the difficulty getting confirmations goes up. And depending on what the the, the differences between the House and the Senate in terms of party, uh, it, it it's terrible because you need these, especially now, especially in that security area. We have forty some, we held up like forty some ambassadors. Uh, if, because someone was concerned about the, the pipeline, which is important, but we needed those ambassadors over in, in the country. So I think confirmation process, the, the report points that out, really important. Vetting and disclosure needs to be updated, reduce the number of appointments and need Senate confirmation absolutely uh, is number one. Number two is, I think that a better definition of the role of the incumbent which, uh, which uh, Valerie pointed out, that administration, ascertainment, fewer agencies requiring ascertainment, that's an excellent uh, thing. And, and finally, there's a bunch, by the way, there are a bunch of good ones, but these are the three that really got to, to me. One is um, more funds for the agencies heavily involved in the transition, FBI, ethics, GSA, Office of Presidential Personnel, and Department of Justice. I mean, it, this, is, this is, as you said, Judy, this is really, really, really important stuff. And we're, we're not putting them, you know, we're putting more money than we used to. But we need to put even more money in these folks because they can do their job during the transition. Governor Christie, what's your main takeaway? Well, look, I agree with a lot of things that Ted said, um, Judy, and <clears throat> and but I also think that um, the regular interaction between uh, the the uh, folks on the outside and the folks in the White House um, being even more uh, memorialized and and uh, and required would be very important. Um, you know, it's it's not as if you turn a light switch off and then turn a light switch on. Um, these problems, issues, you know, and challenges continue. They don't care about our transition period. They want attention paid to them. And I think that the recommendation that tabletop exercises be done and emergency preparedness exercises be done with the people identified by the incoming administration, potentially, um, and by the current or outgoing administration, depending upon the situation, is really important in addition to the ones that Ted mentioned. I, I will say that the vetting process and the confirmation process is incredibly difficult. And that's why I don't want to repeat what Ted said, but I, I agree with him on that wholeheartedly. And Professor O'Connell, give us your sense of this. Thank you, Judy. It's so easy to focus on overall numbers, number of nominations, number of confirmations, withdrawals, returns. Uh, and I think what the report does is get us out of the horse race perspective um, on political appointments. 
uh, and show systematic problems across administrations. I think I was struck most by two things. The first was the detailed accounting of the last transition and just all the myriad of issues uh, that the Biden-Harris transition confronted and how difficult that transition was. And then second, um, as the senator and governor uh, remarked, was we have a set of nonpartisan, compelling, sensible recommendations that would benefit presidents from the left and the right in terms of getting their teams in place. And maybe we can make some headway. We made some headway in 2012 in terms of cutting the number of Senate confirmed positions, uh, but not since then. All right. Thank you, all three. I want to talk first. Um, and let's do this chronologically, but I want to talk first about the pre-election period. Senator Kaufman, um, you were in a in a situation uh, where every day you were uh, leading uh, the transition team while in the news, a campaign uh, was uh, was raging. How did you what was your guidebook as you were thinking about the transition? Did you already know kind of how you wanted to organize this and execute it? Did you make it up along the way? Tell us how that went. No, I, th I think we kind of know. Early. I, I think, look, the two, two key things to a, to a successful transition in my mind is, is timing and talent. So timing is really, really important. And, and what we did uh, was uh, uh, in uh, March, uh, we sat down with Dave Marchick and Dan Hyman from the partnership and talked through what was going to come up uh, in the transition uh, with them. And then in April, uh, then presidential candidate Biden called me and said, let's sit down and start talking about the transition uh, because he understood how incredibly important the transition was. So that was helpful for us. So Mark Edenstein and I sat down with uh, the president and uh, he gave us two days in which to kind of lay out uh, what we'd already prepared things. So it wasn't we weren't starting from scratch, but laid out uh, uh what it is that he wanted to do and how we were going to communicate. Once you get in a transition, communicating with a candidate is just ridiculous. I mean, it's just, it, you know, again, we'll get into this later on, on how important the, uh, the relations are between the campaign and the transition. But uh, it, it uh, clearly, uh, you're not going to get that time later on. After talking about that, the next thing we went to was talent, because talent's really key. I mean, it, 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 it's really, in everything we do, talent's key. But in this, especially, it's talent. And after talking to a bunch of folks who, who, who were involved in the rest of it, uh, we presented uh, the idea of Jeff Science to run the, the whole operation. And uh, Jeff's incredible. I mean, he's one of the, I worked a lot of wonderful managers over the last 50 years in everything. And Jeff's one of the, 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 uh, the top people. He was the head of OMB. Uh, he was the head of the NSC in the White House. He's, he just knows how to organize things. And, and the, uh, the president-elect was really happy with Jeff. He had experience with Jeff, obviously, in, in the White House, and he thought he was an excellent choice. Uh, and then the next thing was Jeff went out and picked uh, Yo Abraham. I don't know how many of you know Johannes Abraham, but he's uh, he had a lot of great positions in the Obama administration and also uh, is teaching at Harvard. If, when I told people that Yo was coming over the campaign, it was it was amazing. Uniformly, people said, oh, Yo, he leaps tall buildings in a single bound. I mean, he, he, he is just so incredibly talented. And then they went out and they picked five really talented people 
to report to them. And Susie George, I don't know if you know Susie, but she's wonderful. She was ahead of all the non-confirmable personnel, which was incredibly important under our plan. But also the confirmable positions were very, very important. And Lisa, we've got Lisa Monica, who's wonderful uh, to do that. Avril Haynes came in and did the foreign policy and national security transition personnel, who was going to be in it, how we were going to organize it. Cecilia Munez, who's another one, incredible person. She took over the domestic policy transition and personnel. And then Jess Hertz came to work for us uh, as the general counsel. Well, it, and thank you. Thank you, Senator Kaufman. It, it, Governor Christie, you were, as we said, you ran the transition for candidate Donald Trump in 2016, a very different, in a way, a very different situation. We, we knew the incumbent president Obama was leaving. Um, uh, this was a matter of the, what was in the news every day was Hillary Clinton versus uh, Donald Trump at that point, once he secured the, the nomination. Talk about you know, how that process unfolded. You took over the transition in May, and we can talk later about what happened later. But during that period, did you have a guidebook for, for what you were going to do? I mean, how, who did you turn to? What did you rely on? few things um judy first i as, as i recall and i took it over in april and and um we what i did first was recruit an executive director um and we then began to recruit other folks to run um all the different areas of a transition next we um i went to consult with all of the republican folks who had been involved with transitions previously i met with jim baker I met with uh, Vice President Cheney. Um, you know, we met with um, uh, John McCain's team. We met with Mitt Romney's team. And I took from each one of them the things that they thought had gone well and had gone poorly in their planning. And that's the way we kind of put together our guidebook was by talking to all these folks. I had extensive meetings with them. Most of them were two to three hour meetings where I just sat there and took them was a sponge. Um, about the things that they had actually gone through. And the great thing, especially about talking with Baker and, and Cheney was they had obviously then went on to serve in, in those White Houses and knew what went, you know, what had served them well in the transition and what had been a waste of time. So that's the way we set up our, our, um, our guidebook. Um, it was different, obviously, than this last one because President Obama was leaving. And so we had really wonderful cooperation from the Obama administration. Um, they gave us access to everything that we asked to have access for that was appropriate. Um, we met with them regularly, um, and we and, and we had um, regular phone conversations with them as well. I think Ted is right that talent is important, and we recruited people in the same way he did, and then also we had recruited hundreds of people to be on landing teams in each one of the uh, departments and agencies. Um, that had particular expertise in those areas that would be ready to go in r right after the election to assess what was going on, work with their Obama administration predecessors so that there would be a seamless um, flow of information in each one of those areas. Um, and, and that's the way we put it together. Lastly, and I know we'll go into this a little more later, but in terms of uh, working with the campaign, we set up weekly meetings with the campaign in New York. Um, at Trump Tower. So we would meet with the campaign, senior campaign people, every Monday. Uh, we would provide them with written reports and agendas 
on the Friday before. So they knew what we had done in the last week, what we were planning and hoping to do in the next week, so that we could get sign-off and approval from the campaign or um, amendments to it on that Monday, and then go immediately down to the team in Washington to begin the work for that week and the planning for the next week. And that those meetings went on starting in early June, and our last meeting of the pre-election team um, was on the day before the election. Um, so it was, I think, a, a very thorough process, very organized, both from our perspective and from the perspective of the interaction we had with the Obama administration. And then, as we know, in the days after the election, uh, uh, the, the newly elected president opted to put somebody else in charge of the transition. There was a changeover. How much did that hamper um, or how much did it affect what uh, the incoming President Trump was able to do coming in? Your, your first adjective was more appropriate. Um, hamper was exactly right. Look, it was devastating. And when you look back on it to the incoming administration, basically what they did was with the president-elect's permission, they removed all of the leadership of the transition that had been doing this from April until November, despite the fact that they had approved every bit of what we had done from April to November, as you just mentioned, on a week-to-week basis. And not only that, they discarded all of the work that we did. So we had 20 volumes of work um, that we had done um, uh, with everything from day-to-day planning for the first 100 days, um, executive orders drafted and reviewed by the Justice Department, um, cabinet-level appointment people vetted. We brought in an entire team of former United States attorneys from the Bush 43 administration who conducted the vetting of potential cabinet and sub-cabinet people, and their reports were all included and discarded. And so really they went from a 20-volume um, plan to move from election to inauguration and to the first 100 days of the administration to a blank piece of paper. And this was the inexperience of the Trump campaign and of the candidate himself in understanding just how complex it was going to be to become president of the United States and to manage this enormous um, uh, enterprise when the most that these folks, most of them from the Trump organization, had done before was run what was essentially a pretty small but successful family business. Um, And it was a significant difference. So I would tell you that what they decided to do in the post-election period hampered them for the entire time uh, that they served in the presidency because, Judy, you cannot catch up. There's too many other things happening. And so to try to redo all the work that had been done in seven months in 70 days um, is just impossible. Uh, Despite their hubris, they found it impossible. Uh, and it set them back significantly with some bad personnel choices. They lost their national security advisor inside the first 30 days of the administration, and it you know went on from there. Well, we're here mainly to talk about, obviously, the 2020 to 2021 transition, Professor O'Connell, but I do want you to weigh in for just a moment here on what happened in, in 2016, from 2016 to 2017, because in, in some ways, and maybe in big ways, this set the stage for what would happen four years later. 
Yeah. So if you look at Michael Lewis's book, The Fifth Risk, uh, on the need uh, for personnel uh, in federal agencies, the very first two words of Lewis's book uh, are Chris Christie uh, and describing so how the governor recognized the need for transition planning uh, and engaged in it. Uh, and when those efforts were discarded, had serious consequences uh, for the functioning of modern government. And so I think there are lessons to be drawn about the importance uh, of transition planning um, and sort of the repercussions that occurred in 2016, but are pre prevalent, right, or present uh, sort of in all transitions and just the need to staff up these agencies. And to Senator Kaufman, we heard uh, Governor Christie say how much, how positive the cooperation was for them in 2016 uh, from the Obama administration. How did how did the Biden-Harris transition team find uh, cooperation support from the from the, uh, the the Trump team in 2020? Yeah. It, it, well, it, it's it's interesting because in the laws that we passed, it created a whole. Uh, searing, as 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 uh, governor talked about, of, of landing teams into each one of the different agencies and setting up all those things, and that worked out pretty well until the president found out about it. And then uh, you know it, it 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 lasted longer than I thought it. Would. Be honest with you, I lasted longer than I thought it would. Uh, but uh, uh, no, it it, it 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 look a modern presidential transition maybe one of the most complex endeavors that human beings can can do. Uh, and it takes a massive amount of planning and you have to do it all. I mean, one of the things that that, that I keep talking to people in business, the rest of the country, the federal government is the largest, most complex organization in the history of the world. Okay, so I got it. But what you have is you basically have two months in which you have to replace the top one-tenth of one percent of the managers. Can you imagine going to General Motors or go to Google or go to one of these companies and say, okay, tell you what, you got two months, everybody at the top's gone, we're gonna come in and replace all of them uh, and try to make that work. At the same time where you know, as uh, the United States, every one of our uh, uh, potential uh, problems overseas, our, our, our national security exposure is incredible during the two months as we've seen by what Putin's doing now, uh, and also what Xi tried to do. So it, it, it's, 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 it's an incredible operation. You have to plan it. It's, I compare it to like one-tenth of, of the difficulty that it takes to do, they took to do D-Day. Just go back and look at what had to be done on D-Day. Everybody can see that and understand it. That's, this thing is like I say, the most complex challenge uh, ever created by the, uh, in, our, you know, in our history. Well, and I should say, and and we should all say that point out that your name is on the, the uh, the the law, the amendment yeah. that uh, changed the transition. So, the, and it was a dramatic change. I mean, the, the, I wrote a law when I was in the Senate, and then I helped on that second law, which they my name's on with a wonderful, wonderful public servant, Michael Levitt, just one of the very, very best. How much difference, just quickly, uh, Senator Coffin, would it have made if there had been more cooperation, more support from? From the uh, the Trump administration at that point, you know that's I, I, I'd like I'd like to say I think a lot. <laughs> you know I don't know how you get over a lot, uh, but you just don't know. I mean it's so also incredibly complex that uh, you don't know. I mean I absolutely believe to the bottom of my being 
exactly what the governor said what, and, and what the professor said. Just an unmitigated disaster in terms of, of the four years, uh, in terms of, of, of creating problems that, that shadowed the Trump administration for four years. But they had so many other problems, as, as, as the governor said, turning over your national security advisors. I don't know how many national security advisors they had. They set a record. When I stopped counting, when they'd set a record for the, for the short number of national security uh, uh, heads uh, in the first year. So there was there was so much turmoil and rest of it, but there, there, no doubt about it. The, the governor and the professor are absolutely right. It was it was key to a lot of the problems that the Trump administration faced. So, Governor Christie, you were uh, not involved uh, personally. I mean, not involved in a in an official sense in the transition in 2020, but you certainly were a close observer of it. Um, what? What do you think might have been, was there anything that could have been done institutionally to, to make what, we, what we're talking about right now smoother, more uh, truer uh, to the intention of, of the law, the law that, that governs transition? Well, I think what the, I want to put some more meat on what I think the senator was implying in his comments. Like I think in the pre-election period, from everything I can observe and frequent conversations I have with Chris Lydell, who was the person inside the administration who was charged with leading the right. transition efforts, that Chris kind of seemed to have hit all his marks in the pre-election responsibilities. And I think Chris, Chris, remember, had been involved um, as the executive director of the Romney transition, working under uh, Governor Levitt. Um, for for Romney, so Chris had a familiarity with what transition should look like, and I think that's why the Trump folks put him in charge in 20 of doing that. Um, and so I think that the law that that the senator helped to write worked really well in the pre-election period of 2020. In the very same way, it worked really well in the pre-election period of 2016. And this is why I don't think there's anything we can do to change what was the differentiating factor in both 16 and in 20. Because in 16, it was President-elect Trump's acquiescence to Steve Bannon and Jared Kushner's desire to discard the transition and start from scratch themselves. His acquiescence to that is what created the crisis that it lasted for a good part of the next four years. And in the very same way, I think if Chris Lydell had been left to his own devices, the transition between the Trump administration and the Biden administration would have gone much more smoothly. But he was ordered by the president of the United States, as I understand it, to not cooperate. Well, you know, Judy, there's nothing we can do, I don't think, from a congressional perspective or any other way, if the, if the president of the United States orders his people not to do certain things. Those people then have two choices, either follow the president's uh, order or quit. But neither one of those things will help make the transition better. Um, And so I think, you know, in the end, one of the things they say in the report here, which is absolutely a truism, but we've seen the results of it over the last two transitions is whoever is the president is the single most important figure in a presidential transition. And I, the, 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 I would not only point to President Obama in 2016, but to President Bush 43 in 2008, who ordered his people 
to cooperate in every way. And in fact, he and President Obama were making decisions uh, in a cooperative way during the financial crisis that was occurring and were conferring with each other regularly because President Bush 43 recognized that President Obama was going to inherit this and was going to have to deal with it and wanted to try, ironically, to do some of the heavy lifting uh, before President Obama got there to help give the new president an opportunity to have a cleaner slate coming in. If presidents take that attitude, then all the laws that Ted was involved in writing here, which are good ones, will be in, will be implemented. But if presidents want to act in bad faith, then it doesn't matter what laws on the piece of paper. In my view, it, it won't happen. Well, you can pick up on that. Professor O'Connell, I want to bring you into this because you do, you study this, you spend a lot of time thinking about this. What about what Governor Christie just said? And I do want to ask you, as you were observing what happened after the election in 2020 and uh, former President Trump's refusal to accept the results and what we saw on January the 6th and and just, I mean, what m- many people would say was a train wreck of a, of a post-election period, um, much of which continues to this day. How How different is that from, I mean, just lay it out for us. How different was that from the way things normally were? So I think the last transition uh, was quite different. And the report does a a fascinating job just detailing all the different factors uh, that the Biden-Harris team confronted. As you mentioned, right, you had the January 6th insurrection, which followed by a subsequent uh, impeachment trial of President Trump right in the initial uh, days uh, of the Biden administration. You had a COVID-19 pandemic, which continues. You had a racial reckoning, uh, as the report describes, of continued police killings of Black men and women. Um, And there were so many different factors which made it incredibly difficult, though I do want to flag two things that as an observer of transitions and as someone who often is saying, oh, you're too slow at nominations, you're too slow at confirmations, two things that struck me uh, about the transition uh, in 2020 to 2021. So the first was the team not only talked about the need to have agency leaders who reflect America, and Bill Clinton had talked about that as well, but they actually made it happen. Um, And so you saw the emphasis on diversifying the leadership ranks uh, of the federal bureaucracy, and you saw it play out, right? So many firsts, right? The first uh, Black Secretary of Defense, the first female Secretary of the Treasury, the first openly transgender person confirmed by the Senate. Um, And of course, finding people to come into government who were not in government before. So, you know, haven't done the forms, haven't done the vetting, who aren't part of the in and outers, right? That takes more time and that does cause delays in seeing nominations get formally submitted. But I was struck by uh, the the demographics uh, of uh, the people being put forward to lead uh, the government. And then the second thing I was struck by and was mentioned briefly uh, by uh, Senator Kaufman was the transition's role on uh, acting officials, basically. So uh, to have temporary leaders who could start implementing the new administration's policy while the traditional appointment system, which is broken, and we'll talk more about that, but while that traditional appointments process churns, 
Um, and so the team put in political allies in many non-confirmed, what are called first assistant positions under the 1998 Vacancies Act, which allowed uh, these appointees who were not Senate confirmed to take on the Senate confirmed jobs in an acting capacity without any additional presidential action under the Vacancies Act. And so sort of staffing up the acting officials to be ready to go, and then also staffing up outside of acting officials, sort of non-confirmed other political appointments just to get people in place outside of the traditional process also struck me as a very good thing that the transition did. Senator Kaufman, I think a lot of people, I mean, again, again following on what we've just heard from Professor O'Connell, a lot of people are struck, are, are, were struck, are struck by the fact that the Biden transition was able to get this done despite what was going on. I mean, how how was that working inside your process? I mean, what was it like? Take us inside. This, we got talent again. We had back had talented people. We had we had people involved that knew the federal government inside, outside, every which way. They, I mean, so they really knew what they were doing. And uh, uh, we we asked a lot, talked to people like the governor did of previous transitions. But like for instance, one of the things was in addition to what the professor said, we were trying to fill spots. We actually went around and talked to people who were thinking about retiring in who were assistant secretaries or down this down the line in an agency and then using find and convincing them to stay and convincing people who were what they call non-career SESs qualified to fill vacancies. I mean, we literally set up people in each one of the federal agencies on, on our staff to go and talk to them about who, who's the best person, what's going on. Who, how do you get them to stay? Because because we knew the confirmation thing was going to be a train wreck uh, because of the uh, uh, of the incumbent president and because of basically the approach that that uh, the Republicans in the Senate have taken to do anything. I mean, Mitch McConnell started what he, he started the whole thing. I was saying I'm going to spend 100 percent of my time trying to figure out how to stop Joe Biden from accomplishing anything. You know, and that's and, and he was being very, very truthful in terms of what their efforts was. So you had to do all these things, Judy, if, if you had any chance to to make progress. Specifically, those Senator Cobb, not though, but but in addition to that specifically the the difficulty in in uh, getting to ascertainment, what's called this technical term. Yeah. But it's, it is important. Yeah. Explain yeah. to us why it's important and, and what obstacles that yeah, well, ascertainment is essentially, it, it used to be, it's just functional. It's kind of like the, the January 6th thing. You know, we just did it. You know, it was like, there was a problem during Bush or, okay, but it just happened. And, you know, what the president did, uh, like he does all these things, uh, as the governor pointed out in terms of the entire thing, he, oh, well, we got somebody here that has to approve it, the federal government. So the head of OMB has to basically say, a lot of, there were a lot of things in my law. One of the big things in my law was, that for on 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 uh, the day after election day, you could have people go into the agencies. You could have people. They'd have staff. They'd have offices. They'd have equipment. All those things were set up in my law, and so that people could actually get started right after uh, uh, after the uh, uh, after election day when they were. But it based on the fact that you had to get ascertainment in order to do it. But the biggest thing we had was, as the governor pointed out, and the and we just aligned all these people up. I mean, they were all lined up, ready to go. They didn't go anywhere. It just delayed the amount of time we had for them to move in their offices for their time to go to landing teams, meet with the uh, agency director, councils, people in each one of the districts. I mean, it's a, it, it is a, it's an incredible process now that we have 
where, as, as the governor said, when you come in, you can send people into every one of the agencies and meet with people on the agencies who are ready for you with books and how you have to do and define what it is. So that all works great. And I think, you know, uh, uh, the, uh, he just had to wait and it just, instead of starting when we could have started, we started, had to start later, uh, but that's the way, you know, that's the way it was. So that's our show. Thanks so much for listening. Profiles in Public Service was created by the Partnership for Public Service. Our script supervisor is Barry Goldberg, and our executive producer is Jordan Lapierre. Profiles in Public Service is produced by District Productive. I'm Lauren DeYoung-Shulman. And I'm Rachel Klein-Kircher. See you next time.